Well, good morning again. I'm borrow that. Uh, if you are a kiddo, K through six, you're welcome to head down with these responsible people to Sunday school with Miss Anna. And if you're younger than K and you'd like to t- take advantage of our um, child care, you can head down through the back of the uh, church at any moment, and we've got some child care available for you down there. You know, my name is, is Dan Moylan. I'm, I'm standing in for our, our pastor, Robert Krumrai, who's in Texas right now. Um, and he's, he uses this time every year to um, travel around and, and go to different churches and actually get people just to come on the mission of Mercy House. Um, and that's been one way that God has sustained our church financially and through prayers uh, for the last 18 years, uh, is that people who believe the gospel um, in a way that actually makes them put their, their money where their mouth is um, and believe in the power of the gospel. Um, invest in Mercy House. And so about 50%, almost 50% of our annual budget comes from people who have never even been to Amherst, um, which is, is humbling and also brings me to a place of just incredible thanksgiving. Um, there's a danger in that, though, which is that we allow this to happen every year. We send out our pastor, and then we, we, it just becomes normal. And it's not normal. It is just an amazing... Uh, an amazing way that God provides for our church. And so I'd like you, please, if you have a cell phone, to take it out and put in a little note this week um, to pray for Robert. At some point between today and the next two weeks, you can pick any day. I'll leave that up to you. Um, but to pray for him and then send him a text to say that you're praying for him um, and that you are also praying for Mercy House during this time. And, and we pray <coughs> prayers of thanksgiving that this is one of the ways that God has met the needs of this church. And once you're finished putting in that note, I'd like you to swipe up and take a picture of the next slide, which is a list of the Psalms that we'll be studying in January. You can take a picture of that. Not me, though. Um, And so each week, we're in a a four-week series on Psalms. This is the first of a four-week series where we learn about Psalm 8 today and kind of the importance of Psalms as a whole. But the idea is that every day this week, we'll be praying through a Psalm, the same Psalm as a church. And so tomorrow, at some point during the day, you'll open up to Psalm 8, and you'll pray through that. And the way that you do that is you read it out loud for information first, and then you pray it out loud or silently, and then you pray again a third time, and this time you put what's um, being prayed about in the psalm in your own words. And that's a good kind of routine to get in when you pray through the psalms. And the hope is that we'll be doing that every day as a church, and we'll learn how to use our emotions in a way to relate to God in a healthy way. So, you're reminding to pray for Mercy House and Robert this week, and you've taken a picture of that. I'll, I guess we should put that on the website, too, so you can access it that way. Um, so I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get started with today's sermon. Father God, thank you so much, just again, for the, um, the blessings that you bring in a new year and in the past year. And we, we thank you for this church that has served, uh, served so many, and, and through your just incredible grace and provision, Father. I just what a privilege it is to be part of this family. Uh, We pray that your blessing would be on the service today, Lord, and that we would just grow more and learn more about how to relate to you in a healthy way through through studying the Psalms, and especially Psalm 8. Lift this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, So the word (coughs) psalm actually comes from the Greek word psalmos, which means uh, song or poem. Um, And that Greek word comes from another Greek word, um, which means to pluck. And the reason that all those words go back to, to pluck 
is that they're meant to be sung or read to a rhythm, like with a harp, the way you would pluck a harp, a stringed instrument, or a lyre or something. Um, And that's different from other books in the Bible, other books that are kind of a logical um, display of of God's character and who he is and who we are as a result. It's different from other books in the Bible that are are in a historical narrative. Um, But this is really really art. This is creative uh, writing. And the reason that that's different from, from other words is that when something becomes art, it makes the viewer or the listener feel something. There's an emotion associated with it. So words stop becoming just, or, or paragraphs stop becoming just a string of words and sentences, and it becomes art when there's an emotion, when there's a feeling that's evoked from that. In the same way that like photography stops becoming just a, a capture of light and shapes and actually becomes art when you look at it and it makes you feel something. It evokes an emotion. Um, same thing for music or, or performance art, just a bunch of flailing body parts on a stage. That stops being moving body parts, and it starts being art when you watch it and you feel something, you feel an emotion. And that, I think, is, you know, that, that is what psalms are intended to do. They're intended to be read and prayed in a way that makes us feel something. It evokes an emotion out of us. Okay? And because psalms are found in the Bible, they're similar to the other books in the Bible in that they're God-breathed. So 2 Timothy tells us that all scripture is God-breathed. It's good for you, um, teaching, rebuking, learning in the Bible. And, and so these types of poems, these songs, are God-breathed. They're divine, which means the emotions that they evoke are emotions that are intended for us to relate to God with, <laughs> right? So because God is intending us to, to feel a certain way or to recognize a certain emotion while we pray through these, it's also his intention for us to bring those emotions to him because they're divinely inspired. Um, <clears throat> reading Psalms helps us guide our emotions towards God. Okay? And it's good, we need that guidance. Because even though we were created in the image of, of a spiritual God with a mind and will and emotions, and, and God's plan A was for us to be in just e- eternal and perfect alignment with his spirit, that means that the emotions that we feel and the way we relate to him out of our emotions would also be a, in part of God's plan. But sin screwed all that up right? Sin messed all that up. And so we need guidance, right? Kind of the repercussions of, of, one of the repercussions of sin that exists is that we stop using our emotions, period, or we stop recognizing our emotions, period, or we stop recognizing our emotions, uh, that the intent of them is to be able to relate to God in a, in a, in a God-ordained way, in a divine way, right? Um, Somewhere along the line, we believed that our mind, our will, our emotions, our spirit can exist outside of God, independent of God. And Paul, Paul says that's um, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. That's what he tells the Romans. Um, we've all done that. We, we have all experienced that sin uh, that has, makes us think that we can exist. Our emotions, our, our, our mind, our will, our spirit can exist separate from God. That's a lie. We're created as, as sons and daughters of God to be in 100% relationship with him. Right? It's a once and for all act when Jesus comes to fix that. Right? So the, the downside to believing that sin, that we can be independent of God, is that it cuts us off from him. It's, it's a spiritual death. Right? And so we cannot relate with a holy God when we are thinking that we can be independent of him. And that, that is bad news because we're created to be in connection with him. 
But God came to earth in the form of Jesus, his son, to live a holy life, a sinless life. Everything that Jesus did and said and thought and felt is what God would think and feel and, and, and act on because Jesus was God. Okay? So he lived a, a holy, sinless life. Um, and the, the penalty for thinking we can be independent of God is death. And Jesus took that death upon himself. He, he paid that price. But because he was holy, his death was enough to cover the sin of the rest of humanity. His, his sin was enough to fix that problem, which means we are no longer left to exist independent of God. But we now have, <clears throat> under God's grace of, of Jesus, we have the forgiveness needed to get ourselves back in line with God's Spirit, which means that our mind, our will, and emotion can once again be based on the Spirit of God the way it was intended to be. That's a once, once like a one-time thing. For under God's grace of Jesus, we're, we're forgiven. And the sins that we commit after that, we're, they're not held against us because they've been paid for already. But there is kind of like a, a residue of sin that exists in our lives. Would you agree? There's, there's a, a consequence, kind of a bad, I think of it as a bad muscle memory of the time when we thought that we could exist independent of who God is. And that bad muscle memory can come back into play at various points in our, our Christian walk. And, and for me, maturing in my own faith is learning <clears throat> to align my mind, will, and emotions with the Spirit of God more and more and more and more and more, and not acting off that muscle memory. I think I can be independent of that. Um, what makes that <clears throat> tricky is this, this sinful muscle memory where we, we try and act, thank you, we try and act as if... Uh, our emotions are separate from God, or they're not intended for us to relate to God in some way. Um, Paul calls that living, living out the old self, the, the independent self from God, instead of the one that is dependent on God and aligned with his spirit. Um, we we're, we're basically can function as emotional cripples <clears throat> or emotional delinquents. Um, and, and there's a spectrum of that delinquency, right? So, I think for some of us, and maybe this is a generalization, but I think for guys in general, it can be hard for us to find a place where we can sit in our emotion. And we can recognize that it's there, and we can submit that to God, and we can kind of like tease it through, right? Because we might think that that's weak to recognize that, that um, we have emotions, and then that might stir something up in us, whether they're joyful emotions or, or not. Um, but it's a weakness, and, and we, we think that we are independent. It's that independency problem, that muscle memory. And that, that's bad because that prevents us from submitting our emotions to God and relating to him through those things. Um, that type of person might be someone who's fiercely dependent, uh, afraid to ask for help, uh, maybe is a, a bit of a loner or is lonely but is okay with that. Right? That, that sin residue, that muscle memory of, of thinking that our emotions are not intended for us to connect with God. You might be on the other end of the spectrum, too. And we give our emotions too much importance. And, and, and our emotions are predominant. And, and instead of recognizing the true purpose of them, which is to feed us into a relationship with God, we use our emotions as the foundation for all our decision-making. And the things that come out of our mouth are based on our emotions instead of a combination of emotions and, and logic. Right? And that's also a form of being an emotional cripple. And you might be anywhere on that spectrum. And some of you might think, yeah, you know, I definitely feel really uncomfortable when I'm in a vulnerable position and talking about my emotions. I don't like that. That is not comfortable for me. I don't like doing that with people. I don't like doing that with God. And you might think, 
I'm an emotional cripple. Or you might be thinking, I don't think I'm an emotional cripple. I, I'm okay sitting in my emotions. I'm okay submitting those to God. But I'm definitely 100% married to an emotional cripple. And good luck to you <laughs> if, that's, if that's your case. That's a hard place to be. Um, because not only does that emotional delinquency impact how we interact with God, but it also impacts how we interact with other people as well. And it can be a tough place uh, to be married to somebody who is acting out of that sin residue, that muscle memory of independence from our emotions. Um, <clears throat> in, but in the same way, it, you know, if you are in a relationship with someone or in your marriage and you recognize that an in- inability to access and identify emotions exists, well, as a, a married person uh, who's in a, a commitment, we fight for that, right? We, we act on that. We say, even though this is hard and vulnerable and uncomfortable and there might be tears involved, or it's, you know, it doesn't have to be sad, but it, it could be a, a positive thing, but I'm going to sit in this with my spouse. I'm gonna, we're going to talk about it together. That's a way that we fight for our relationship through accessing our emotions in a healthy way. Um, it might look like going to see a, a counselor, a professional counselor, who can provide us with the tools to identify what emotions we're feeling. How frustrating is it when you're feeling something, or you know somebody is feeling something, and they can't identify what they're feeling? It's really hard to function in that way. And so sometimes if we access a, a, a professional who's, or a counselor who's equipped to provide us with the vocabulary to do that, it can be helpful, right? And Psalms kind of does that for the Christian. This actually makes me think of a movie that we watched this weekend <clears throat> called Inside Out. Have you guys heard of that movie before? Got 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. <clears throat> it's very good, um, but certainly hits a certain age group, I think. Uh, but it's one of those movies you can watch with your kids and it actually, you actually are entertained by it too. But the, the premise is that it takes place in the mind of this 11-year-old girl who's, th- who's going through a stressful situation through a move. And all the emotions that are going on in, in her brain are personified in these characters. And so like you've got sadness over there on the left and you've got joy and anger and disgust and fear and anxiety. And they're, all, they're combating with each other to kind of take control of the ship. And she acts based on whichever one of those things is, is in control. And I thought this was interesting because um, I have a, f- a second grader uh, who came home from school one day and he was angry about something that happened in school. And he was talking to me about it and he said, Dad, I was in the red zone. And I said, what is the red zone? He goes, the red zone is like when you're really angry. And public schools have capitalized on that movie in the last two years. And they've done it in a way to teach social, emotional behel- social and emotional health to kids who are familiar with this. And so this is a chart that's in all the classrooms in his school up to a certain age. And they're taught um, to first identify what, what feeling you're feeling right now. Now, this is really a behavior management tool, I think, but the plus is that it also provides them with skills and vocabulary needed to have some kind of emotional health, right? And so the first thing they ask is, what zone are you in? And they might say, I'm in the red zone. And the next question is, well, what can you do? And there's another chart that goes underneath this that says, you know, you can ask for help, you can take deep breaths, you can count to 10 or things. Um, And it's, it's, I kind of love this because it's priming them with the ability to identify emotions, communicate the emotions, and then do something with it, okay? Now, the Psalms can kind of act like our feeling zone chart for the Christian emotional delinquent. The difference is with the psalmist, instead of asking that second question, what can I do? The psalmist recognized that we're created in the image of a God 
who has a spirit, a mind, a will, and emotions. And so our, our mind, will, and emotions reflect and, and are designed to interact with God. And so the psalmist's second question is, what is God's role in this? Right? Here's what I'm feeling. What is God's role in this? It can be really difficult to do if we're not even willing to engage in the first question. But the second question is really key for the Christian. It is, God's given me this emotion. He's giving it to me so that I can relate to him in a certain way. Okay? So we sit in it. What am I feeling? What zone am I in? And what is God's role in this? And then the Holy Spirit gives us a truth to speak to ourselves. The psalmists have done that. They get it. And you and I have access to their emotional journal, right? There's 150 psalms, and, and they get this process. They get the real function of emotions, right? They get the process of, I'm sitting in this. I'm not going to fake an emotion. I'm not going to try and feel this way instead of this way. I'm going to sit in this. I'm going to use this to relate to God in a way that he's calling me towards him. And he's going to meet me with some kind of spiritual truth there. Um, you know who does this really well in our church, I think, is Ashley McKechnie. And you know, she's not here right now, but she knows that <clears throat> I'm saying this. And I, I know this. I know that she does this well because I read her Facebook posts sometimes. And not the ones where she spills coffee all over herself in front of the cute Starbucks guy, uh, <clears throat> which happens a lot, much more than you would think. And not the post where she's like declaring her undying love for Shannon. Like not the, those aren't the posts that we're talking about, right? We're talking about the raw but healthy sitting in a, in a place, it, whether it's joy or sadness or trouble or peace. She, she has a skill. She has the skill to sit in that and then ask that second question, what is God's role in what I'm feeling right now? And he meets her with a biblical truth. The Holy Spirit meets her with the truth. And sometimes, and she does, she journals daily. I mean, she's probably got a stack of journals through that. And sometimes she puts that on Facebook. It's, it's a way to honor God. It's not like an unhealthy sharing. It's not like too personal. But it's, guys, here's how I'm feeling. Here's how God is speaking to me in this. And that benefits me as the reader. It benefits her, right? Because God's speaking to her and it's feeding into her identity. And it's a healthy accessing of my emotion and then relating to God out of that. But it also benefits me because it, I'm a human too. Like Ashley's a human, I'm a human. She has Facebook, I have Facebook. She has feelings, I have feelings. She is under the grace of the gospel, I am under the grace of the gospel. She has the vocabulary and the skills to identify where she is and seek God in that. I don't all the time. One of the most frustrating parts of, of me is an inability to communicate what I'm feeling. It, it happens a lot to me. And it's so frustrating, especially if I'm in a conversation with somebody and it's just not going well. And I know it's not going well because I'm not being clear about what I'm feeling or what I'm thinking in that moment. Ashley doesn't have that problem necessarily. All the time. Right? But, but she provides me with an example. When I'm feeling this way, <clears throat> oh, this is how I respond to God in, in sadness. I don't, fr- I don't ignore it. I don't pretend it's not there. But I submit that to him and I invite him into it. He meets me with the truth. Or when she's feeling particularly joyful, and she, she'll write a, a, a post about that, and she says, um, I'm feeling this way. Why am I feeling this way? What is God's role in, in this? He is the source of my joy, right? It's not in the fact that I just got this new shiny object or this great thing just happened, right? It's that God is the source of my joy. And that, and that serves as a model for us to use our emotions to relate to God in a healthy way. Now, if you don't have Facebook, don't worry. 
because we have the Psalms, which do the same thing, except they are divinely inspired, right? That there is no sin residue. There is no muscle memory that's leaking into Psalms. So this is God's divinely inspired scripture teaching us how men and people who get it submit their emotions to God in a healthy way. And so for, if, you're, if you're on that spectrum of emotional delinquency and you're, you're the, the type of person that's like, I don't even want to sit in my emotions, I don't even want to acknowledge that I have feelings or emotions, your, your Psalms is probably not the book you're going to gravitate towards, right? But this is a book that we need to gravitate towards as a church and as a Christian to learn how our, our emotional identity is designed to relate to God, okay? And so this is what we're going to be sitting on for the next four weeks at Mercy House. Um, and today, we're going to be looking at, at Psalm 8. Um, now, the beauty to the Psalms is that they cover the whole spectrum of human emotion because they're uh, written by, by humans, divinely inspired by God. And so <clears throat> they're, they're Psalms that model for us what, what suffering and loneliness um, looks like and how we can relate to God through that. And there's Psalms about joyfulness and gladness and how we relate to God through that emotion, about feeling troubled and, and feeling peace, about mourning and about rejoicing. Um, it, it, the, the Psalms cover the spectrum of, of human emotion. And so we've got model after model after model of how to relate to God from our emotional identity in a healthy way. And we've chosen to start this sermon series with Psalm 8 because it is a psalm of praise and, and thanksgiving and adoration towards God. And what a great way to start 2018. Every, every day of the week, we'll be praying to God, a, a God of adoration, and, and uh, we'll be praying to God a, a song of adoration and of, of praise. Now, this psalm is written by David, same David, David and Goliath, same David that um, succeeded Saul, same David, David and Bathsheba, right? So there's certainly sin residue in this guy's life, but he gets how to, to sit in emotion, and he gets how to invite God into that. He gets it. And actually over ha- about half the, the Psalms are written by David. They're written by other people as well, but they're all divinely inspired, and they all uh, have a purpose for, for modeling for us how we relate to God in, in a healthy, emotional way. Now, if, if we look at Psalm 8, the first thing that I notice is that it's a Psalm sandwich, and that's trademarked, but you can use that term if you want. Um, and the Psalms sandwich is uh, significant, I think, and it's because you're starting and ending the psalm with the same line. So in that line is, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And then the last line, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's, it's, and everything in between is sandwiched in between those two things. And it's a, there's a significant um, point to that sandwich, which is that he's starting the psalm acknowledging who God is, and he's ending the psalm acknowledging who God is, which protects everything in the middle, right? Anything that's in the middle we know is in the context of God's identity. And so, so who is God? Well, we start with, O oh Lord, our Lord, and there's actually two different Hebrew words that are used for Lord there. One is, is Yahweh, which is kind of the big God, God the creator, like Lord over everything, create over everything. And the other one is Adonai, which um, means master, kind of like Lord, Lord over me, right? And then he says that, that your name is majestic, <clears throat> okay? And that majestic is coming from, from majesty, 
which is royalty. And so he, what, what he's really saying here is, you are God of everything, and you are God of me. And you're a king. Your name is king. And although, you know, we live in a democracy 2,000 years later, the, the idea of kingship is that a king is divine and is worthy of our submission and our allegiance. And so what David is teaching us is that when, we, when we're, we're sitting in adoration of God, the way that we relate to him from that is by telling him who he is. You're God of everything, and you're God of me. And you're also king. You're worthy of submission. You are worthy of allegiance. And everything in the middle is sandwiched between those two fundamental truths. Okay? You're God of everything, you're God of me, and you're worthy of my allegiance and my submission. Now, the middle part of the sandwich really is about who, who David is, who, who is man, right? And he's saying that who is man but that you are mindful of him. You've created everything. That the moon, you get this impression that David is, you know, observing nature. He's looking at the moon, the stars, maybe the mountains and outside, and that's calling him to this place of adoration as God the creator. And he's saying, well, who, who is man but, but that you even just thought of us, right? How, how is it that we could ever be in a place where we thought we could exist independent of you? You are God the creator, and any glory that we have as human, we're made a little lower than the angels, but higher than every other species on the planet. The fact that we exist there in that, that plane is because you thought to put us there, right? And so in between the sandwich of who God is, we find out who, who we are. We are works of God's creation. We have been given a crown of glory from God. Right? Um, and, and, and David gets that. He recognizes that. And he comes from an emotional place of adoration. And it, he turns that into a place of, of praise. And some of us, when we are out in nature, <clears throat> or you've climbed a mountain, or you're at the Grand Canyon, or you're looking at the stars, we might get to a place where we're like, holy smokes, Sarah's really good at this. Look at what God created. God made all this. Whenever you climb Mount Tom, she tells the boys, God made all that, right? <clears throat> but if we stop there, we're missing out. We're missing out on the, the relating part where we then turn that into prayer and we relate to God. God, you are God of all of this and you're God of me, right? Who, who am I that you, that you had me in your mind, right? What, any glory that I have is because you have given it to me. That's, that's the kicker is we recognize the emotion of adoration, but then we invite God into that and we relate to him in a place of praise. How, how different would our lives be if we did that on a daily basis? If we prayed that on a daily basis? A recognition of God as, as God, as God of us and, and worthy of our allegiance. <clears throat> it, it would mean a lot. It would be meaningful to me. So I'm looking forward to being in this psalm every day this week. And the other thing I want to point out about this <clears throat> is... Um, he mentions something about kids here. He says, out of the mouths of babes, babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. So this idea that God is establishing strength out of something that is weak and vulnerable and sometimes helpless. Okay? And for anyone who has had kids before, you know that moment when the kid is born, it kind of brings you a place on your knees where you're like, oh my gosh, this is... This is God, the work of God. Like, this is God's work. Um, I remember when Owen was born and I was driving home from the hospital <clears throat> by myself. They were still there. I had to go home and get something for Sarah. 
and I'm driving. He was like maybe six hours old, and everyone's driving by me on, on the road home. And I'm like, these people are just going to work. They're just going about their day like the earth hasn't stopped rotating, right? It's this mind-boggling kind of just earth-shattering recognition of God's in charge, and he is the creator, Right? And so there's, there's certainly this sense of adoration and praise that we bring to God when we look at just the miracle of, of birth. But I think there's something else here. Jesus references Psalm 8 in Matthew when right after he goes into Jerusalem on the donkey and he flips over the money-changing tables, all the kids <clears throat> that could see him started yelling, Hosanna! It's the son of David! Which means Savior. They're yelling, that's the Savior! And the, the priests and the Pharisees and the scribes were like, do you hear what these kids are saying? And Jesus says to them, yeah, haven't you read Psalm 8? Didn't you hear David say that out of the mouths of, of babies, God's strength is evidenced? Right? And I think what David is doing here is he's priming us to receive our king in the form of an infant. That it's not crazy that the savior of the world, that the king who can reconcile a, 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 a group of spiritual and emotional delinquents and cripples, who can reconcile that with the living God, would come in the form of a baby, of an infant. And we celebrate that every year this time of year, the birth of that infant. He is, Jesus is the only reason that we can have any kind of emotional relationship with God at all, because he brings us into a right spiritual state with him. It, it, it's the only reason we can even hope to learn from what the Psalms model for us. It's the grace that's offered under Jesus. We celebrate the birth of that infant every year, and we celebrate uh, the incredible gift of sacrifice and his death every week here at Mercy House through communion. And so, <clears throat> just in the same way that the, the Psalms model for us that we can relate to God in, in a healthy, emotional way, um, we also can use uh, communion to recognize that the reason we relate to God at all is because of the incredible gift and sacrifice that Jesus offered for us, right? And so Jesus modeled that in the same way that David's modeling for us right now. Jesus modeled, <coughs> modeled that for us with his disciples um, on the day <coughs> that he was betrayed. And he sat with them, and he, he told them that, <coughs> you know, my body is going to be, he's preparing them for, for what he's about to do that this is an incredible need that we have, and it's the only thing that can bring us into a right standing spiritual and emotional state with God. And so while he was sitting with them, he, he took bread in front of them, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. And he said, take this and eat it in remembrance of me. <clears throat> and in the same way, he took um, the cup, and he said, uh, <clears throat> this is the cup of a new and an everlasting covenant. This is my blood shed for you. Drink this in remembrance of of me. And so in a moment, I'm going to invite you to come up here to take the bread and to take the cup and go back to your seat. But I'm, I want us as a church to read Psalm 8 together first, out loud. And then I invite you to come up and take the cup and the bread back to your seat. And then I want you to pray Psalm 8 in your mind and in your heart. And then I want you to pray it again in your own words. And that's the model for how we will pray through Psalms this week. So can we, can we pull up Psalm 8? Great. Here we go. Our Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name.
for the gift it is to be made in your image and the gift that it is to be rescued from our own dependence. We thank you for the gift that it is to be able to relate to you on so many different levels, including an emotional identity, Father. And so my prayer now is that you would meet us, that your Holy Spirit would meet us, Father, uh, and guide us in how we relate to you as individuals and as a church, Lord. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.